I'm Jeff Cohen. For nearly 20 years, Rachel Moore has led Moore Connected Communications, a public relations, social media, and communications firm that helps Israeli and North American clients share their voices with the world. But that's just one piece of her story. She's here today to talk about her career, her work with Aish and so many other Jewish organizations, and her Jewish path. So let's get started. Rachel, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. And you can tell just from the intro that we have a lot to talk about. And for starters, I realize you're doing the interview from Israel, but that is not where your story begins. So tell us where you were born and raised. I grew up in Weston, Connecticut, in a town of 5,000 people, being told I was a Bostonian because my parents are, I'm our fourth generation Bostonians, and lived there having really never seen an Orthodox Jew. Um, my family moved when I was 16, so I also grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, and I graduated from public school there. So your entire childhood is in the New England region, and you just said that you hadn't seen an Orthodox Jew as you were being raised. That tells me you were raised like fully secular. Like, How would you describe what was going on within your household? So my household changed. I think my parents took their Judaism for granted because they grew up culturally Jewish in Boston, in what I consider a shtetl. Um, so I think they went looking for a really good public school and didn't really give it that much thought. And as we got older, they started to realize that we weren't really going to have a Jewish identity if my whole life was Weston. So to answer the first part of your question, I grew up going to Cotillion and going to a country club that was the one country club that allowed Jews in. Um, Cotillion, where we learned waltz and foxtrot in a church hall. But I grew up in a family that was very proudly Jewish and went looking for a synagogue where they could build some kind of community. So they found that in a conservative synagogue two towns away in Norwalk, Connecticut. And the synagogue really became a home away from home for my parents. And they started to grow Jewishly. They were told by the rabbi or they had a speaker or something, your kids won't marry Jewish if they don't go to a Jewish camp. So all of a sudden we went to Camp Ramah. <laughs> Wow. And so my parents' observance started to change. The first time I saw an Orthodox Jew was at the meat counter in Stamford, Connecticut, because my parents decided to kosher the kitchen. Now, they did that when I was about 10 or 11, and both sets of their parents tried to talk them out of it. Really? Why? You're frumming out. Like, why would you, you know, you're making your life so difficult, and why would you do such a thing? And you're going backwards, not forwards, and it's not necessary. The way they tell me the story, both sets of parents thought it was the fault of the other one, like not their kid, was convincing them to do it. I remember very clearly lobster crawling across the kitchen floor, and then not <laughs> anymore. But we continue to eat non-kosher out of the house. It's interesting that your family finds this conservative shul, and when you hear those kind of stories, it doesn't necessarily mean that the family takes on anything orthodox because that's not what's going on in the conservative shul. So I'm, I'm wondering what they were being exposed to there that had them go further, I would say, than a, a typical conservative Jewish person might go at that point. So I think that the rabbi, Rabbi Jonas Goldberg, Zichon um, Rivacha, was very instrumental in making changes. And I think that he wanted his congregation to be involved in learning and observance. Um, I also think it was a different conservative movement back then. But I can't really speak to whether that's typical of other conservative synagogues because I didn't have exposure to Jews. 
I do remember very clearly that I was not very old, and I told my parents that I wanted to go out with Jimmy Mustard. And they had this, like, complete meltdown. And I think this was the beginning of them realizing that they had created a situation that was sort of the American dream but wasn't going to give us any Jewish identity and woke them up to starting to make changes. I never went on a date with Jeremy Mustard, and I was never allowed to date anyone who wasn't Jewish, but my brother started getting into Kadima and USY, my older brother, and Camp Ramon, then I fell in Camp Ramon. I think they started taking active steps because they woke up to the fact around that time, I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, that they had to be thinking about our Jewish identity. And my, that means my brother was a teenager. So this is probably when they started to think about these things. And to their credit, they were really willing to practice, not just preach. They didn't send us to things without an openness to change in their own lives. And there was definitely an evolution in my parents' relationship to Torah study, not just observance over the years. Um, they never had any interest in Orthodox Judaism. That was, that was never part of the process. But Judaism became a more central part of our identity gradually as I was growing up, for sure. And so you mentioned how the grandparents thought they were going a little too far with koshering the kitchen. How did you feel as a kid watching these steps being taken? What did you think about the changes that your family was making? I don't remember having any resistance or negativity to any of it. My clearest emotional memory is that I never fit in in school. I was the Jew, and I was really proudly Jewish, and I wasn't going to apologize for being different, so I was a little won't say in your face, I celebrated the fact that I was Jewish. And where we lived, I mean, not going to school for a second day of Rosh Hashanah meant we were the frummiest, frummy people anyone had ever met. And I leaned in. So I think I was very happy about it. I'm positive that we were having an identity we could celebrate because clearly the identity of the town where I lived was not accepting me. So while we're talking about your childhood, I want to also bring in what you do for a living for a brief moment. Because when I interview people who go pretty far in a particular field, like you have in communications and PR, I always like to know, did they realize they had those skills as a kid? Were you a writer as a kid? Were you a good public speaker? Were you good at convincing people of things? Like, did you know at that age that there was like a skill set there as you were growing up? So I always wanted to be a singer. I was going to sing on stage. And I would not only join the choir at this synagogue very young, and my Jewish identity became absolutely intertwined and incredibly central to my life. The synagogue hired the second female cantor to have a pulpit in the conservative movement in the United States. And that feminism was a big, big part of my parents' Judaism and a big reason why I left the conservative movement eventually. But she really handpicked me to be a soloist and traveled with the choir. So I absolutely wanted to study music and was sure that I was gonna be singing the rest of my life. I was a writer from an early age and because I was a singer, the stage was really comfortable to me. And being around performers and being around people who like the spotlight. So it all was kind of there. Um, and I really didn't want to study anything but music. And two things happened later on. One, there was not a chance my father was going to let me study music without getting a proper degree so I could earn a living, according to him. No way. Nice Jewish girls don't go to Hollywood. Not a thing. And second, I fell in love with Israel. 
And that didn't necessarily mean that music was going to be such a clear path for me. So having an English degree would help me if I wanted to be in Israel. I mean, it came later. But so much of what came out of that love of music ended up sort of being a part of what I do today. But I absolutely thought that I was going to go into the performing arts. Initially, I thought I was going to be a cantor. I actually, I mean, I was very much her protege, and I loved singing, and I was really into my Judaism. I, I think it's part of the reason why it made my parents so nervous. I think they kind of sensed I might become religious because at 13, 14, I wanted to read Torah from the Bima several times a year. I read Megillah. You know, it was fun for me. I really enjoyed it. It was, it was my Judaism and my music together. So you just brought up a few things, this desire to be a singer, falling in love with Israel, and also practically getting an education that you could earn a living, and that came from your parents. So, so bring those three pieces together about what happened next in your story as you were in your teen years and approaching getting you know, a further education. So I'm gonna back up a tiny bit. My parents moved back to Boston. For them, it was moving back when I was 16 years old. It was the beginning of 11th grade for me, and they really wanted to be in a place that was a stronger Jewish community. Newton, Massachusetts is definitely a stronger Jewish community than Weston, Connecticut. They wanted to be closer to my aging grandparents. So when they had the opportunity, they moved. It was a good move for everyone in my family, except for somebody about to start her junior year who'd been in school with the same 100 kids from K through 10. And I was not happy. I took the opportunity to reach out to the theater community in Boston, because if at least I had to be near a city and start over, I had access to all this theater, and that was great. So I studied at the Boston University Theater Conservatory, which seemed to be okay, but again, I got a lot of caution. You know, it's a great hobby. You're not studying that. And then my senior year of high school, I had an opportunity to come to Israel with USY for two months. It was the American High School in Israel, which is a secular program, did a two-month program with USY, which was their basic program, but also had shacharit and benching at the meals. And the goal of that trip was to get away from Newton, Massachusetts and having to start over. What came out of it was that I absolutely fell in love with the country. And what I fell in love with really had nothing to do with falling in love with a different type of Yiddishkeit at all. I absolutely loved Israel. I was sure that this was where I needed to be. I had no idea how music would fit into that. And my Madrich, who was clearly interested in everybody making Aliyah, gave me a cassette of Rita's, this Israeli singer. It said, you could be the English-speaking Rita. You know, if you want to do music, you could do anything here. And I didn't, I didn't know what would be, but I decided that maybe going to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut wasn't such a good idea anymore. And I wanted to come back to Israel for the year to do a gap year. Now, I'm dating myself. A gap year in 1990, if you weren't religious, was off the charts, radical. Nobody did that. And I asked if I could come on Nativ for a year. Conservative movements spent a year in Israel. And I wasn't really thinking about my singing or anything else. I just knew that I wanted more time in Israel to figure it out. I went home, my parents said, there is no way you are going on a gap year to Israel. Absolutely not. They were so adamantly against it, mostly my father. But he had a problem on his hands because he was a national board member of the conservative movement by this point. 
and this was the flagship program of the conservative movement. <laughs> so <laughs> that made things a little difficult. And I told them I was coming back with or without them. And that was it. So I came for the year. And a few really important things happened while I was in Israel. The conservative program, to its credit, which was really a leadership program, in addition to having davening every morning, had halacha classes. We were not only learning halacha, we were learning on the inside what's the halachic process of the conservative movement that distinguishes it from the orthodox movement. Now, I don't know how many conservative Jews are like learning the theology of their own movement to that extent. I don't even know how much that's still a part of the program. But I think it is really to their credit that they exposed us to that. And it was through my understanding of takanot and gzerot and my understanding of how they came to get rid of machitza and to push egalitarianism that I started to reject the movement. I didn't like find God. I considered myself a very religious person. And I, what I felt really deeply was that the push for so much modernization and the push for egalitarianism at its core was a lack of humility. It was like very much about what we want and not rabbinic wisdom. And the bucking the Talmud to me and the layers felt so much like the secular West in life that I knew wasn't for me. But I did meet people who were Orthodox, Orthodox upbringing and not religious, who said, I'm not changing the Torah for me. It's a Torah I'm not keeping. And that was a radical idea for me. I came home from that year specifically wanting to go to a school that had music because even though I had sort of made this theological change and I was convinced I wanted to come back to Israel, I still very much saw myself as going into music. But where are you holding religiously from the things that you've learned? Because you shifted your story back to the music right now. So at this point, I come back from Israel. I tell my parents, still not going to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. I want to go to McGill University in Montreal. Montreal had a, a big Jewish community, had a big religious Jewish community, had a big Zionist community. It had a really good English program because I had decided at that point I'm going to study English and maybe I'll work in public relations. I really did think that at 18 years old, and I don't even know of a single 18-year-old that knows what public relations are. But I had thought if I don't do music, maybe I'll do that. And they have a music conservatory. They have a really serious music school. So I was thinking I'll be able to do both. I came back keeping Shabbat to the extent that I even really knew what that was, not asking if I could go to seminary, but looking for a more Jewish place to go to university and eating vegetarian out of my house with a kosher house and not eating anything that was, which I guess is like kosher style maybe. And I figured if I can get through of three years in a strange city, keeping Shabbat and not going down, like not regressing to what I was, and I don't really grow that much, it's okay, because then I'll go back to Israel. So I studied English in university. I found Jewish friends. I went to the Hillel. I kept Shabbat. I wore pants. I was very, very disciplined about not going out Friday nights and almost as disciplined about going out on Saturday nights. I mean, what a day. And I had a great time, and I was in a community of Israel activists where there wasn't a lot of separation. The Montreal community is very traditional. 
So there wasn't a lot of separation between the religious community and the pro-Israel community. And I really actively went out of my way to find families to be with. Because I think it's what I'd learned in my year in Israel that I was really going to need that. And I took classes in Judaism where I could, and I studied Hebrew, and I studied music, all the while getting an English degree, and my father scratching his head, because clearly it hasn't worked. Like, my being back in North America was not really, you know, having much of an impact in that sense. I think it was very helpful in terms of my family because I didn't go from zero to 60. It was, these were very, very gradual changes in my life. And at this point, I said to my parents, I know you feel like I'm rejecting everything that you are. I literally, like, handed my tallest back to my parents. Like, I'm not going to wear this anymore. But you grew in steps. Like you decided I'm going to do a little bit more and a little bit more. And you're the inspiration. You're my models for figuring out where I want to go Jewishly and doing it slowly. I'm, I'm really not a rejection of you. I'm a continuation of you. I don't know how much that made them feel better, but I think they were astonished by the level of respect. <laughs> I think going from this sort of angry teenager to really imbibing this notion that there's a best to be respectful to your parents helped a lot. <laughs> By the way, I just figured out why you're so good at PR, because you had all this training with your parents on messaging and positioning and how to say things and how to angle the story so that the listener can hear it in the right way. So you were getting kind of a dress rehearsal for your career through your childhood and how you dealt with your parents. That is true, but also with my community. I have literally spent my entire life needing to find ways to explain to people what I do that's different than what they do. So I think that's true with my parents, but I also think it's true with all the people that were around me. So let's pick up the story now with McGill. So as you approach graduation, you were pursuing English, but also music. So And also this idea of maybe going back to Israel. So how does that play out as you get closer to graduation? So every summer in between my classes, I went back to Israel. My parents are realizing this is not going away. And now I've been keeping Shabbat, you know, my vacations. And when I'm home for three years, I think they, they sort of understood. They understood two things. One, I was going to finish my degree and not, quote, unquote, go crazy. And that it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't a fad and I hadn't, whatever. So that was helpful. I was planning my Aliyah, my entire last year of school. I moved to Israel four months after my last class. I didn't go to my graduation. I had been a vocal Israel activist on campus. And when I came to Israel on a pilot trip, I auditioned for music teachers. Okay, I've checked off the box. Dad, I made you happy. I got an English degree. Now I am finally going to music school. And I chose where I was going to live on the basis of studying music. I was still going to sing. I knew that when I got from McGill to Israel that I wanted to grow more. That I, like I said, I was really trying to like maintain and that knew I was ready to sort of ramp up when I got back to Israel and it would be easier for me. I, could, I wouldn't have to be kosher style if I'm living in Israel. It would be easy to go to being kosher, for example. So I'm in Olpan. I've made Aliyah. I've chosen Jerusalem on the basis of one of the most renowned singing teachers in all of Israel, who is completely secular and is training me for the entrance exams to Rubin Academy. And I'm studying opera with her, and I'm keeping Shabbat, and I'm wearing pants to work, and I'm finding families to go to for Shabbat, and I'm finding shirim in English and in Hebrew to go to at night to learn as much as I can learn, and making a lot of mistakes along the way. 
and I have to get a job. So now what do I do, right? Because I can't not work until I go to basic school. And the only thing I've really done is be this Israel activist. And I really like dealing with politics. So I decided to call up City Hall in Jerusalem to see if I could intern with the mayor for free. But I ended up the assistant for foreign relations to the mayor of Jerusalem. And I was using my English skills and I was representing the city that I absolutely loved. And I started to ask if I could leave City Hall to go to my singing lessons in the middle of the work day, once a week. And the mayor's chief of staff said, don't tell me what you're going for because it's gonna create precedent. I don't wanna know. You need to leave for a weekly appointment. That's all I wanna hear. And I did. I would leave City Hall and go to my singing lessons because that was my priority. So I come to my lessons and over time, I'm more and more excited about the work that I'm doing. And she said to me, Look, we've been working together now for about a year, and your auditions are soon, and you'll get in. You're good enough, which was a very big deal to me. But I'm really not sure that that's what you should do. First of all, you've become more religious. If you want to make it an opera, you're going to have to leave Israel for a few years to prove yourself in Europe. And you will not be able to, most likely not be able to cover your hair. I don't know if you'll be able to get away with not performing on Shabbat. But you can't make it an opera and have more than two kids. Now, religious lifestyle aside, because I see that your Judaism is important to you, you love your job. Nobody goes into show business if they love doing something else. I think you should rethink it. Now, I had lots of people tell me that I shouldn't work in show business. But none of them had said with any conviction, you're good enough if you want to do it. But maybe there are other reasons not to. So if they told me not to do it, all I heard was, I'm telling you gently and nicely that you're not good enough. So I thought about what she said, and it was like earth shattering for me, and realized that my priorities had shifted. And over the course of that year, I really had like become much more observant. And maybe this wasn't for me anymore. So I kept my job and really settled into the idea of working in PR. And I went on to give an opera recital in Jerusalem of all the music I had been mastering for women only. <laughs> and most of these women, right, people are going to a women's only performance are not exactly exposed to opera. Right? So it was like a very interesting experience. And they were, you know, but I did not give up singing lessons and performing. I took a break for many years as a mom, but I, it's, it remains a part of my life today. It is absolutely a part of my soul. It's a part of who I am. It's just she helped me come to the conclusion that this should remain something that's in my life but not my profession. And that was the point which I made that decision. But it was really far along in my journey. It's also a testament to how connected you were to Judaism because you're at this point where someone's telling you that you're good enough and they're also telling you it might be at the expense of some of the Jewish things that you want to do. And you could easily in that moment said, you know what? Music is my dream. I'll go in that direction. I'll kind of pause the Jewish stuff and, and see where the music goes for a couple of years and see if it's taking off and I, I can come back to it. But you had gotten like far enough along in your journey that you had the wherewithal to say, that's probably not going to work out. I'm like, I'm enough into the Judaism that I'm going to stick with it and like continue in that direction. I also want to say that it was really lonely. It was hard because 
I didn't really have anyone to ask. Like my parents thought all of my decisions up to this point were completely wacko to begin with and didn't really understand what my priorities were at that point. And there were different families that were role models for me for different things in my life, some of whom I'm blessed to have in my life until today, which is so incredible. But they couldn't exactly relate to what was going there. I really didn't have a rabbi or someone to ask. I had to kind of decide what kind of life do I want to build here. And there were a lot of places along the way where it was a trade-off. So now let's bring in another piece of your story. You've, you've made a decision career-wise what you're going to do, but now you're also single, and I would think this is like the time of your life where you're starting to think about wanting to find that special someone. So you have these different backgrounds. You're American, then you're living in Israel. You weren't religious, now you are. So like, what kind of person are you looking for? So my dating experiences were not great. We'll start with the fact that I was living in Katamon, which was like this Jewish single scene, which I think is a terrible thing for all singles. But I, I remember I stopped wearing pants, not out of a sense of snoot at all. I felt the pants I wore were very flowy. They were very loose. I really didn't feel that they were a modesty issue. I wore longer shirts. When I was out on the street in Jerusalem, if I was wearing pants, men would assume that I was single and not religious. So the people who were talking to me were not religious. So at a certain point, I decided if people are going to make assumptions about me, I would rather them make assumptions that I'm religious than not religious. I didn't fit the traditional mold. And I was quite, thank God, blessed to be successful in my career. I was driven and successful. I was an associate director at 24 years old, like running a staff and running an organization. And that didn't actually help me in terms of dating. I also really, really loved my work. I loved what I did, and it meant that I worked a lot. And that didn't help either. So at a certain point, I decided, I, I had other jobs after City Hall, but at a certain point, I decided I was going to slow down in terms of my career. I was like 26 years old, still single, in the dating scene, hating it, and completely burnt out career-wise. So I went to work at Ramah programs in Israel, which was really, really interesting because it's this like conservative program. But for me, as a, as a Ramah kid, it was kind of like going back home in many ways, but it was a type B environment. It was less intense and it made more time for me to be really mindful and thinking about getting serious about getting married and starting a family. By the time I was 26 years old, I'd been keeping Shabbat for eight years as a young adult. So I didn't feel like a lot of the people I was meeting. It wasn't so straightforward. But it only takes one. So I'm guessing somebody comes into your life who somehow gets through all these different issues you've just been describing that make sense for you. So part of my job is to book media interviews for my clients and my bosses. And my boss was booked to do an interview on an English language radio station in Jerusalem. And he came back from the interview, which I had booked for him, and said, I think the host might be your husband. <laughs> like, I'm going to make the shidduch. And that is who I married. <laughs> Wow, what, what made him say that? Like, what was he seeing in this person? I guess he'd heard enough of your stories about what you were looking for. My husband went to Princeton, and he comes across as like a really preppy intellectual. So I think that's part of it. He said, he's really, really smart. It'll be a good shidduch for you because he's really, really smart. 
but he, he's divorced, but he doesn't have kids. So on the first date, my husband told me he actually did have a kid. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I didn't know that, ball. but I agreed to go out with him. Right. <laughs> but I think also he was somebody who was an intellectual who also, you know, he worked in the world of words and he was on the radio and speaking. So maybe that's why. I don't know. But he was also raised secular in the States and came to Israel and became religious? My husband has a very, very different journey than mine, and it's much more dramatic. But his father is an Irish Protestant, and my husband grew up going to church until he was eight years old. I don't know the exact story, but his brother wanted a bar mitzvah, and they, like, switched from the church to the Reformed Temple. But he actually grew up with no Jewish background at all whatsoever. But he ended up, like, coming to yeshiva, going back, finishing his degree at Princeton, and then spending a number of years in yeshiva, a much more traditional, balchuva sort of journey than mine. So at some point as, as you're progressing, you end up starting your own company, More Connected Communications, but also in your story is taking this role at age. So how did those two things come about as your, as your career journey was continuing? I was working in-house in different Jewish organizations and working specifically with PR. And then I had, thank God, like a number of kids very close together. And I took a break for a while from working. But I started to blog because I figured this way I'll learn the internet and I have to get back on the horse in terms of writing. And I did. I wrote about being Jewish and being a mommy and being a Jewish mommy. And I wrote about Israel. And I learned. I learned how to build a community online. Um, And I started getting asked if I would take work. So... As I went back, and I went back gradually so that my family still had me around and I had that flexibility, I started working with as many clients as I could that were focused on like Israel and the diaspora and Jewish diversity. That always interested me. And I went back to working for Jewish organizations. And I worked for really, really wonderful Jewish organizations. I was asked by Jamie Geller, who had become the chief media and marketing officer and was also a friend of mine through my work if I would take Ishan as a client. And I was really happy to do that. And I did certain specific projects with Ish, but it was very clear to me that the needs and what she was doing with the organization meant that they were gonna have to hire somebody in-house full-time. And the CEO, Rabbi Berg, seemed really interested in my coming in full-time. And for me, this was like, you know, I made this active choice to not work in-house anywhere anymore. Is this really something that I wanna do? And I said that I would on the condition that I could keep my firm open because I really didn't want to abandon my clients and have been involved in a lot of other really interesting projects. As my time at Asia has increased, the amount of work that I've been doing with outside clients has decreased. So I'm still very much doing both. So much of what I'm doing is like celebrating the Judaism that I came to love. So to get to do that for a living is incredible. And so I want to ask you about something I've seen in the press related to Aish, which I'm guessing you had a lot to do with this idea of engaging 3 million Jews in learning Jewish wisdom by 2030. So Aish has done a really good job of getting that tight messaging out. So how did that idea come about and what role have you played in spreading the word and getting people engaged in it? The idea came about from the Rosh Hashiva, Rep Berkowitz, who really needed to understand and define what Aish was going to be in a way that addresses the needs of the Jewish people today and addresses Jewish survival. At its core, Aish Vision 2030 and getting 3 million Jews to learn in 10 years is really about a sea change 
It's really about putting Jewish learning back in the center of the expression of what it means to be Jewish. There's so much availability to be culturally Jewish that you can feel very Jewish without being engaged in Jewish wisdom and that that's tragic. And I think the recognition was if you have decided that Torah observance is for you, you can find those resources today. But if you are at the stage as a young adult where you want to find a way to be more observant, there are organizations and there are resources all over the world. If you have no idea why you should care about being Jewish, and you don't even know what that means, or you feel really good about being Jewish because there's a Friday night sing-along at your camp, but you don't know like what Torah is or how to study it and how to learn, I don't think there are resources. And I don't think it's intrinsic to the, the culture. The most exciting part for me is yet to come because Aisha has been very wise. And to Jamie Geller's credit, there's been a real effort to create content that people can enjoy first. But as that content really is available in so many more places and being revamped, one of the steps of the strategic plan is to focus on that sea change, is to focus on the conversation about where's learning in Jewish identity and expression. So what is yet to come for you? Because one thing that has come across really clearly in the interview is yet you're someone who like goes after things. So I would think that the next thing that pops in your head or whatever's on your list you haven't done, that there are these few things that are on that bucket list for you personally. So what's on the horizon for the next three to five years for you? And then we're gonna go into our lightning round. I have more time now as my kids get older to really focus on my career. And at age within the Jewish world, whatever that's gonna look like is a real goal for me. I feel very strongly and passionately and the Judaism that I chose to become a part of gives equal weight to the people and the book and the land. It is uncompromising about all three. And I'm so privileged to be able to do that at Aish and really talk about unity of Jews who are diverse and accepting people where they are, while at the same time celebrating authentic Torah Judaism. And at the same time, the politics of the modern state aside, really celebrating Aliyah in Israel and the, and the centrality of Jerusalem in Israel. We're also coming up on, um, Aish will be celebrating its 50th year. That's very exciting. I will also mention that I am a founding board member of a nonprofit that is not a client that's called Israel 2048. A good friend of mine and former ambassador Michael Oren asked me to get involved and it's focused on what does Israel want to be when, it's gro- when it grows up? What does Israel want to look like at 100 years in 2048? I think that's the challenge of this generation and I think that piece is where we find how authentic Judaism combines with true democracy, combines with a modern state, can meet. And we're so not there. So I hope I can have some teensy tiny piece in sorting that out, because I think that's really the core of our challenge. And I do think that this challenge to get Jews back to learning is the biggest part of the solution. We're going to now transition to closing out the interview with the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you some fast questions. And guessing what you do for a profession, I think you'll be really good at this. So you ready? Yeah, I think so. All right, let's get started. What is your single best piece of advice for a client that wants to spread the word about a new product or service? 
figure out what you do and why and be able to tell everybody else that succinctly and clearly. You'd be amazed. People cannot do that. Fair enough. So let's ask the flip side of that question. What's the biggest mistake you've seen your clients make or a fictional client could make in launching a new PR campaign? People do not understand the difference between PR and marketing. There is a huge difference. They work together. When done well, they work together, but they're not the same thing. So the biggest mistake is skewed expectations. People don't really understand that journalists don't want to write articles that are just like free ads for you. It's to me is quite obvious, but not something that people seem to understand. Let's ask you a question now about Aish. Let's say someone is hearing about this organization for the first time through this interview. What would you say is a first step they could take to engage with the organization? Visit Aish.com. The website has been a resource for so many of us. I meet so few Jews who have not looked something up. It doesn't matter where they're from, what they're doing. This has been an unbelievable touch point. So I would say go there. You Now you can find Aish everywhere. You can find Aish on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook. And Jamie Geller gets all the credit for that. Um, I get to write about the fact that she does that, but she <laughs> she does that. But I would say go to Aish.com, visit, spend some time there. You'll find what interests you. Got it. So last question. So you made it clear in this interview how you made that decision to move from America to Israel. So we have listeners in both countries and other places around the world. But for our listeners who are not yet in Israel, but are thinking maybe someday, maybe I should do that, what would you tell them as they're pondering making that move? I think the Jews are supposed to be in Israel. And I think that everything that we meet that's a challenge, that is our opportunity to bring that to Israel that doesn't already exist. Like people used to say to me, well, there's no... Americans can't move to Israel because there's no customer service. Well, the only way that Israel's ever going to have customer service is if Americans who understand customer service move to Israel. (laughs) So I think the answer is, you know, be part of the solution. I think God has done this miraculous job of, like, removing all the reasons and excuses that people didn't want to move. And I think it's the adventure of a lifetime. But I also think it's easy for me to say because I moved young. Like I moved at 22 and I could learn the language and I know, I recognize that it's not so easy for people. If anyone is thinking maybe, maybe, maybe they want to make all, yeah, they should contact me through h.com and I'll tell them all the reasons why it's a great idea. (laughs) Okay, well, you just spread the word about people getting in touch with you. So we'll see who get flooded with people looking for advice on moving to Israel. It wouldn't be the first time. Rachel, let me say you are officially out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so, so much. It was great fun. I appreciate it. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.